Hello and welcome to Phoenix Thriving, UW-Green Bay's student success podcast. I'm your host, Vince Lowry, the UWGB Director of Student Success and Engagement. On this show, you're going to hear from faculty, staff, and students. They're going to give you stories and advice about success in and out of the classroom. But you're also going to hear stories about struggle and even failure. Bumps on the road to success that everyone experiences. Our goal? To help you achieve your goals in the classroom, make connections in the community, and get the most out of your college experience. To be a Phoenix Thriving. Welcome to a special edition of Phoenix Thriving, and I've got to say I am geeked out about this episode. Ever since I got word from Kevin Gannon that he'd appear on the show, I've been so excited. I've kind of teased that we had a big guest coming up. Uh, A few of my colleagues knew about it. I got some questions from them that they were hoping Kevin would answer. Uh, He's a leading voice in the world of teaching and learning. His new book, Radical Hope, is a call to action we all need to heed, not just for our students, but for the future of higher ed, and quite frankly, I don't think I'm overselling this, our society. Kevin's the director of of the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at Grandview University in Iowa. Uh, Listeners who've seen Ava DuVernay's documentary 13th will recognize Kevin's name and voice. And for those of you on Twitter, if you're like me and among the over 66,000 people who follow Kevin, you'll know him better by his Twitter handle, The Tattooed Prof. I, I couldn't be more excited about this episode, and there's so much ground to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. Kevin, thank you for being on the show. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, Vince. I'm doing great. So, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, uh, we got some heavy hitting questions, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with the uh, some soft toss here. I know you're a baseball fan, um, but uh, but I'm gonna ask you a question. That I'm sure is is burning in all the minds of your Twitter followers. How are Yoshi and Lulu holding up with the COVID-19? <laughs> they, I think, are enjoying having us home. My wife is an administrator at our university, so both of us are working from home. And so as far as the dogs are concerned, it's sort of like summer camp every day. People sure. are home. You know, they're, somebody's ready to give them treats or to play with them. Uh, but they have also done, you know, I think ramped up their vigilance against squirrels and other associated yard varmints to protect us while we work. So there may be some background uh, ambient dog barking during this interview. And if so, you know, we'll know that the mailman came. <laughs> Absolutely. I recorded an episode uh, uh, late last week and I had the exact same thing happen. Our, our dog uh, similarly on the prowl, making sure no one mm-hmm. comes to the house. So, right. Working from home is serious business. It, it is. It is. You know, I think there, there are all kinds of wrinkles to the experience that, that I know I didn't anticipate. Right. So so let's get right to the heart of the challenges we face in higher ed today. It's a laundry list of, of obstacles. Um, and, and I want to dive into to, to Radical Hope, which, as I said, I loved. I finished it. It was probably the fastest read I've, I've had in the last couple of years. And immediately ordered copies for 25 faculty who are a part of a program that I run at, at UWGB. You know, I, I read that, and maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, you know, I'm part of the choir that you're preaching to. But I'm struck how reasonable the philosophy and the practices you propose are. What do you think is holding everybody back? That's a great question, and, and thanks for reading the book, and, and my editor and the press, thank you for ordering the book as well. Um, I'm glad it's resonating, and 
you know, I, I think sometimes when we talk about what it means to change the ways in which we think about and actually practice working with students or thinking about teaching and learning differently, uh, that it's very easy to think that these are, you know, fun, you know, the, that these are changes that are going to completely disrupt everything. And that's, I think, a product of the fact that so much of the rhetoric around higher education is in this, centers in this disruption, you know, in order to change, we have to, to do everything differently in order to be better. And, and I don't think that's the case. I think sometimes the type of deep-seated fundamental change that, that would be most effective is bringing something that's already at least present in our practice or present in the way that we operate uh, and, and making it much more central. Uh, so affirming ideas and practice that may already be on our radio, uh, radar screens, for example. Uh, but it's hard to do that sometimes because it does, I think, require us to rethink some of the stories we tell ourselves on an everyday basis. Um, you know, where, whereas in, on the faculty perspective, for example, it's so easy to get kind of beaten down and cynical and talk, you know, start complaining about students and, oh, they can't do this and, oh, they can't do that. And then we get into this narrative uh, that's very hard to get out of and where even, you know, seemingly reasonable changes uh, look impossible because they challenge that narrative. They challenge that story we're telling ourselves about our everyday work. Uh, so, you know, simple doesn't always mean easy. And I think that that's what we're looking at here. Yeah. And, I, and, and one of the things that strikes me about that, that, that cynicism that you describe, I think it, it gives ground, it creates space for the, the advocates of disruption to, to propose an alternative because there's the cynicism is is a void right and, and it absolutely doesn't, right it doesn't offer a path forward so the disruptors get all the room they want to to work and 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 as a consequence we're sort of we're we're finding higher ed hurtling in a direction that you know everybody in higher ed you know the people sort of on the ground doing this work know is 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 not disruptive it's destructive Exactly. And I think, too, you know, I talk when I talk about assessment with colleagues, I use the phrase, you know, assessment is nothing but us telling the story of learning. Right. And if we don't tell our story, somebody else will be more than happy to tell it for us. And I think that that's what we see. Right. That, you know, this idea of, you know, disruption and whether that's kind of a neoliberal privatization or the idea that you can unbundle things on campus and that the college experience is simply about content delivery and then additional modules of stuff as needed. You know, those are destructive of the enterprise that we're on. But but if, you know, the primary uh, agent in this process, faculty, students, and staff, for example, uh, have sort of moved into this weary detachment. You're absolutely right. We don't have a compelling counter narrative uh, to, to work with, and it does cede the territory. It does kind of surrender the agenda, and that's a real problem, and I think that we're seeing the results of that nationwide. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I, I hear the word unbundle, and I was uh, actually last night I was preparing for a keynote, and I was reading uh, Chris Gallagher's College Made Whole. Um, mm. And there, to me, there's this this it, it structural guide there. I think you, you have this great sort of on the ground guide, and then Gallagher almost seems to be speaking at the administrative level about the way to to counteract some of these impulses. And and again, sort of as you said, we we can't see that ground. We have to embrace right, right. it. We have to. T I love how you put that. We you know assessment is the sort of the story we tell. Um, I think that's such an important way to frame that. 
to to in response to the cynics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's you know sometimes with the way that assessment has been sort of weaponized, right? That it's a top-down mandated process, and you know there's often the assumption that it has to be just sort of cold, hard, quantitative data. Uh, that's not really it at all. And if we can reclaim that idea, you know, again, assessment is basically if we tell our students they're going to be different as a result of taking our course or majoring in our program or attending our institution, how can we prove that that's the case? And that's an eminently reasonable question to ask, and we ought to be able to bring evidence to bear to say, yes, this is this is how you are different. This is how this experience has been transformative. Uh, these are the promises we're going to make you, and, and, and these are how we're going to be able to tell if they're fulfilled. Uh, that's where we need to be standing, and that's the you know again we tell our story better than others tell it for us, and we need to reclaim that role. Yeah, fantastic. So we're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to the future of higher ed, but I want to go back to the past. Actually, ground that yeah. you and I both walked. Um, we uh, like you. I I was a student at James Madison University. Uh, arrived two years after you graduated. I'm I'm curious, yeah. what kind of student were you at JMU? I was, for the first three years at JMU, I was indifferent at best. Um, I, uh, I, I arrived at JMU as one of those students who was not used to making decisions about how to use unstructured time. Uh, and I've learned that about myself to this day. I am still not great with unstructured time. Uh, but I, you know, made typical freshman dude decisions. Um, I majored in partying for about three years, um, made some choices that didn't really do well for me academically. Um, in fact, I actually reached a point after my third year where I almost dropped out because uh, I felt like I was just kind of spinning my wheels and not really getting any traction and maybe this college thing wasn't for me. And I was doing okay. I had like a two-something GPA, uh, but you know, I, I wasn't putting two and two together and, and realizing that, you know, the, the circumstances in which I had found myself uh, were largely of my own making. Um, so I ended up, you know, I, I had planned on dropping out after my third year, um, deciding right before my fourth year, what I call my first senior year, that I, that I, you know, maybe I will come back and give it another shot. And a lot of things happened that summer including an ill-fated uh, attempt at uh, boot camp in the military to, to help me decide that maybe I should refocus on college. Uh, so when I came back, uh, I was able to sort of turn the corner, but I had a lot of help in doing so. So my last three semesters, I took four and a half years to graduate. My last three semesters uh, were a stark contrast <laughs> to the okay. first three years. So, so I'm interested, what distinguished, you know, uh, we probably know a lot of the same people from our days at JMU. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you, what distinguished the professors that impacted you and maybe helped you to, to turn things around? Yeah. So I majored in history there um, and minored in English. And I, uh, in the history department, and there was also a professor in the political science department who I took towards uh, the end of my, my experience there, who I think saw me trying to get my act together, knew that I had become interested in going to graduate school and, and saw potential uh, and, and really went above and beyond uh, to help me sort of figure things out and to support me through this process of getting my grades up enough to where I could apply to graduate school, you know, with any degree of seriousness. And 
And so, you know, this was, you know, my advisor, my history major advisor, another professor who was my uh, former freshman advisor. So it seen me at the beginning and now was seeing where I was coming to at the end. And, you know, and they really what they 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 understood that I was trying to kind of undo the products of some poor decisions uh, and really dedicated themselves to, to helping me navigate a process of applying to graduate school and to finishing undergraduate successfully in ways that, in retrospect, I was so fortunate to receive, you know, walking me through an application process, editing uh, the personal statement that went with my application, giving me kind of a behind-the-scenes uh, talk on, you know, this is what, you know, grad school application looks like, and this is what you can expect when you start a program, and, and really just helping fill some gaps in my knowledge and, and make me more confident, um, you know, and, and I'm indebted to them forever because that set me on the path that ultimately I ended up where I am today, and, and, and what strikes me about that is they didn't have to do any of that, you know, for three years I hadn't necessarily given faculty members much of a reason to to intervene on my behalf, uh, but yet they did anyway uh, and had faith in a student who just took a long time to kind of figure it out and put it together. And so I try to take that uh, in forward into working with my own students, understanding that not all of us take the same path to get to where we are. Yeah, I think that for me, and, and, and again, speaking about my own experiences at James Madison, um, the the way that faculty went out of their way there, you know, the, those faculty that stand out in my mind as, as I think back to those uh, those days are those faculty to, to, that that took that time to sort of pull back the curtain and say, look, this is this is how it works. And this is how right. you need to navigate this in order to be to to achieve the goals that you have and the goals that we have for you. And in retrospect, you know, having gotten a lot more experience in higher ed since then, I look back now, and that, you know, at it, it, it JMU, that was kind of a norm. I mean, that's, you know, that was the that was what a lot of faculty I did, or at least the ones that I ran across. Uh, and and I realize now I'm fortunate. Not every institution is like that, at least consistently. Um, but that was definitely one of the hallmarks uh, at, at James Madison, and I'm lucky to have been there to benefit from it. Yeah, no, I, I I completely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, the the as I look back, I was so fortunate to go through a, a, a program like that. And I and likewise, my experiences with faculty outside of the history program, it was the same, the same sort of care culture yeah. of caring really before before people talked about a culture of caring in higher ed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that. I, I realize now that a lot of the time when I talk about things like empathetic and compassionate pedagogy and working with students uh, who may be deemed at risk and all these other things that I'm interested in, that those experiences that I had at JMU really helped form the way that I look at those things now. Sure. So we're going we're gonna to press pause on the JMU promo. We'll have to send the, the <laughs> podcast to them and they can uh, they can chop that up and, and, and push that out as a as a, a recruiting tool. Um, I'm curious, as we kind of look ahead, you, you, you've hinted a little bit at, at the impact, you've talked a little bit about the impact that, that your experiences at JMU had, but as you moved forward in your career, was there a light bulb moment that redefined your approach to teaching? Um, that's, 
I don't know about one particular moment, but there's sort of a series of moments early in my teaching career where it became pretty clear that some of the assumptions that I had sort of brought into the classroom weren't necessarily working with what I wanted to be as, as an educator, as a teacher. I think in graduate school, it's very easy to sort of internalize kind of a departmental culture uh, or a way of looking at teaching, say, 100 level or first year courses. Uh, where you're positioned as the expert, right? In graduate and PhD work in history, you know, we're trained to be the expert in our subject and to defend our arguments against all comers and to, to be able to hold forth uh, on, on a variety of things with, with evidence and sources and copious footnotes. And all those things are great for a dissertation or a scholarly monograph, but they're not so great for necessarily teaching U.S. History 1, right? And so I had to kind of get out of that, I am the expert, I must perform this knowledge mindset into a, you know, how do I do this collaboratively and invite my students into this process? Because that's who I wanted to be as a teacher. But there was a disconnect between my practice and my goals for a couple of years, and I had to, to figure my way through that. And some, you know, mistakes were made, <laughs> and, and it was a, you know, it was definitely a kind of a tough learning curve at some points. But... But ultimately, I feel like, you know, with the help of some more experienced colleagues and from my students that I was able to navigate that. Yeah, and I want to I want to pick right up with that point about the role your students play uh, in your classroom uh, throughout Radical Hope. And, and I've listened to a number of interviews, uh, podcasts you've done. I needed to be sure I wasn't asking the same questions you've answered 100 times already. You describe your students repeatedly as your allies and not your adversaries. And I, and I love that framework. And, I, and I'm curious, how do you build that culture in the classroom? Because as you acknowledge in Radical Hope, so much of the culture of higher education tends toward the latter dynamic of an adversarial relationship. So what is it that you do in the classroom to try and shatter that deeply woven and also deeply problematic relationship within higher ed? So a couple answers to that question. First, I think my own personal experience has informed that approach. Uh, you know, I, I think about if I was a faculty member who encountered me as a student, you know, my first or second year of college when I was making poor choices and partying too much, what would I have thought of myself? Right. And then, you know, so knowing how my own experiences played out and the people that had a role in that, you know, I need to be the, the faculty member who, who goes the extra mile to help a student who might be drifting because that was done for me. So that's part of it. And then the other part, I think, is to think really deeply, again, about these assumptions that are sort of baked into the cake, you know, these implicit internalized things that just kind of, you know, hover in our culture. It's like the David Foster Wallace story about how does a fish describe water, right? You know, how do we describe this this mindset that we get in? So, you know, for example, when we talk about students uh, in higher ed, a lot of times we go into analyzing what they didn't do in high school. You know, they didn't write papers. They can't read. They can't do this. They can't do that. And so we've automatically defined students as deficits before we've even met them in a class. And so if the first thing I'm telling myself about my students is what they can't do rather than what they can do, uh, then I'm already starting off in this sort of adversarial relationship because then I start to see my job as a teacher is to fix something that's broken. 
Uh, and I think that's a really dangerous place for us to be because, you know, you you get involved in all sorts of very problematic kind of power dynamics and you're you're overly centered and students are at the margins when you're approaching it as I need to fix these broken things. Right. Like our classes are not the island of misfit toys. Our students come to us from a variety of different paths with a variety of different experiences. They are full and complicated human beings, just as we are. And we need to acknowledge that. Uh, you know, when we complain, for example, that students just want to go to college to get a good job, I mean, that's what have our students been told since they were old enough to think about school in the future, right? Go to college and get a good job. That's not my students' fault that this has been the narrative. If I want to undo that narrative and say, no, that college is good for much more than just, quote, unquote, getting a good job, then I need to, my students need to be my allies in that process to unpack that narrative, to figure out, you know, why is it that that's all we talk about with college and what might we do better? If I'm not enlisting my students in that cause with me, uh, then it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite conversations I had with a class a couple years ago, it just sticks out in my mind. We talked a little bit about uh, they'd read a short article on neoliberalism and higher education and some of the choices that were being made about programs and uh, class offerings. And it, it was that that moment of peeling back the curtain. And and they were so angry. They, they realized how limiting their education was becoming and how limiting the opportunities for for growth and and transformation um how that was happening through the changes ongoing in higher education. And they, they sort of, you could see like this, they, they almost were ready to like, you know, storm the ramparts and uh, demand yeah. change in higher education. Which is ab absolutely a reasonable response to this, right? And, yeah. and that's what I mean when I talk about students as allies rather than adversaries. The changes that we as faculty and staff advocate for, for a more socially just, uh, equitable, inclusive higher education, our students feel the same way. Uh, and and our our most effective potential allies, uh, you know, students and their families or, or or guardians, you know, these are the people writing the checks. Uh, if administration wants to talk about students as customers, that's a flawed metaphor, but it can be leveraged here because if the customer is always right, and the customer says, "Hey, wait a minute." You know, let's talk about these cuts to the humanities and what that means for my education. You know, students are our allies, not our adversaries. Yeah, I, uh, I I will often say in meetings, whether it's about recruiting or messaging to the public, you know, it's 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 great for me to stand up and say, this is why a liberal arts education is valuable. This is why our institution is going to deliver the best education out there. But at the end of the day, it's where people are going to look at me and say, well, of course you're saying that. That's your job. Mm -hmm. And you have to say that for right. job security. And, and that's and, and that's why we need to enlist students as you're talking about there. Students need to be the ones delivering delivering the message um, because they're the ones that this is that we exist for. We exist for them. <laughs> right. And it's it, you know, one of the things I do when I talk to prospective students and their parents when they come to visit campus is, you know, I ask them, you know, what what is it that you want out of this experience? And a lot of the time, you know, I want a good job. I want to move into this career. I want to be stable. I want to be secure, all these things. And, I, and so I say, OK, you know, let, this is all great and wonderful and eminently reasonable. And we all want these things. So imagine that you've graduated uh, and you've taken your first job in your career field and the pay is wonderful and the benefits are great, but you hate it. What are you going to do? What do you need in your toolbox if that's the case? 
And that always kind of gives people a pause because it's like, oh, how do we define a good job, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what are you going to do if you find yourself in a place that you thought you would have been, you know, ready for and eagerly awaiting, and it's not what you thought it was? Uh, you know, what do you have to fall back on? What do you have as, you know, to think about plan B? Uh, and that's that's where we can get into talking about, you know, here are the things that college should be doing for you. And here are the ways that we think we can help you with that. Yeah, no, I think that that's such a that's such a great way, great way to frame it. I mean, especially when, you know, I have I have a 13 year old and I think in fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade, he had to complete a, a career assessment. I just thought to myself, wait, <laughs> what? Like and, yeah, and, my my kids both had to do that too, and it blew my mind. Yeah, and and I'm just thinking like, no, 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 like whatever, <laughs> like let's just you know, and and he started like, well, it's saying I should do this and I should do this. I'm like you're in you're in fifth grade, no, exactly, and, exactly. And, and I like to talk to students. I mean, the way I kind of the way I often pitch this is, um, you know, you you come to college, you're 18. You know, you're still figuring stuff out. You know, they don't like to hear this, but, you know, adolescence now continues till about 27. So, you know, you're, there's still development right. happening. Right. Um, and don't shut doors yeah. on that. Don't shut doors on those possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, no. And, and that's, that's a hard sell. They, yeah. You know, they haven't been told that, right, because of this career focus. Yeah. No, and I think that's a great point. I mean, I you know I think about my JMU experience, and and there were some classes that I started to take toward the end of my time there. I got interested in in, in film, and in theater, and and it really kind of tipped off in a direction that I that I went in for a while, and and to some degree I still draw upon those experiences, even if only marginally, right? They're still there. They're still the way you put it. That's sort of the toolbox. So. All right, so I want to kind of dive into into the classroom. You devoted an entire chapter to the art of writing a syllabus, <laughs> and 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 you know people have I, I think love hate relationships with writing syllabi. Um, I think for students, it's that it's the 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 day they dread right the first day of class. Um, right. When you start working on your your syllabi. What's your primary goal? What did, when you tackle that document, what are you hoping to achieve with that document? Well, I want it to be uh, a set of promises to students. Uh, and Ken Bain, who wrote a great book called What the Best College Teachers Do, um, and then followed it up with a book called What the Best College Students Do, which is also a very good book. Um, Bain talks about what he calls the promising syllabus. Uh, and and his, his conception of that is, you know, a syllabus is really the gateway into this experience where we're making promises to students. We're trying to invite them in and say, this is what this course will do for you. Again, you'll be different at the end of this course than you are right now. You will have changed. And so let's talk about what those changes are, how they're going to benefit you, and what we're going to do to get there. So that's what I want a syllabus to be, is to embody those promises. Uh, here is what this course how, or how this course is going to change you. Uh, and you should know from that syllabus where I'm coming from as an educator, how I'm approaching this philosophically, uh, what's expected of you, what you can expect of me, uh, and you should feel welcome into this course. You know, the syllabus should be able to accomplish those things, I think. Yeah. And, and I want to kind of maybe run a little bit with that. And you, 
nodded to the the rhetoric of the college ready college you know the college ready student which often conveys the idea that success is only open to some right and it conveys it to both instructor and student alike how do you counter this how do you assure students that that they can be successful that they are going that they are going to change regardless of what experiences uh, knowledge um, or circumstances they bring into your classroom well, I think one of the most powerful things, and I tell this to my first year students in particular, you know, you got admitted to college. That's us saying you could do this thing, that you could come into our community and we're going to help connect you with the resources and tools that you need to be successful, whatever success looks like for you. Uh, so you can do this. That's why you're here. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, it's 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 very easy, I think, for, uh, you know, say a first generation college student or someone who was kind of, uh, you know, maybe uh, not as dedicated to, to academics in high school to get into college and think, you know, somewhere that I shouldn't be here. Right. Like somebody's going to figure this out and eventually tell me that a mistake has been made and that, that I have to go home. Uh, and honestly, I felt that way the first few years of my own academic career. Right. Like somebody's going to come in and say, uh, Dr. Gannon, um, you know, there's been a terrible mistake. Uh, you shouldn't be here. And, and I'm going to have to escort you out of the building. Uh, so, yeah, so I think fighting back against that narrative that tells us, you know, you shouldn't be here. You know, we should all be here. Everyone has the right to higher education. Uh, you know, we need to create core spaces that put that at the center, that acknowledge that and account for the fact that students have taken different paths to get to a course and that I cannot penalize students for being put on one path as opposed to another. So I have to think about what is the learning environment like that's going to be able to encompass these experiences? What kind of course materials and pedagogical choices am I going to make where my students can see themselves as the producers of their own knowledge? So in teaching history, for example, you know, I, I tell students, you know, I want your historians like you're not just students of history. You're not going to sit there and I'm going to throw a bunch of names and dates at you and we're going to say you've learned history. That's not how it works. You're going to be historians and you're going to do history, which means that you need to see yourself as capable uh, of participating in the scholarly conversation and not only capable, but entitled to participate in this conversation. Uh, so what kind of skills am I going to help you build to do that? Yeah, I think one of the, one of the things, the, the little nugget you dropped in there that, that for me is really important. I mean, that idea that even even faculty and staff feel that imposter syndrome and to 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 be, you know, I, I've i found and I find this in your readings as well. And some of the things you've even said, you, you've said today, to sort of to to admit that vulnerability to students when they look at. Uh, you know, they sort of have this assumption of power and authority and and to really say, like, look, no, like I'm I'm still trying to figure stuff out, too. I'm worried, too. We're in this because it conveys, I think, uh, what I'm hearing from you is this idea. We're in this together. Again, it's that idea of allies, not adversaries. Right. And however, we're you know, it's it's going to look differently for different faculty members to sort of express and to embody that solidarity with students. You know, I've got tenure and I'm a white male. And so it's easier for me to admit personal vulnerability in a classroom than it might be for a junior faculty member who's a woman of color, for example. Uh, but there are ways, I think, whatever our positionality is to to 
to form that solidarity and to let students know that, yes, we have an empathetic and compassionate connection with what you may be feeling. And so maybe we model it as a still learning approach. You know, our scholarship is constantly changing and evolving. New questions come up. Old questions go by the wayside. Our focus shifts. You know, none of this is set in stone. So let's talk about what it means to be constantly learning rather than just approaching this field as a set of facts that shall never change, right? And so, you know, modeling that, you know, I'm learning with you and this is what it means to be a scholar is that we're learning and relearning it's the journey right uh, and so I think those are really important things because I think sometimes students come to us and expect us to be experts on everything and oh my professor knows everything that happened in U.S. history and there's no way I could ever have that kind of knowledge well that's you know I don't and you can and that's what I need to be showing you yeah that's fantastic and you, you've, you've offered some really, I think, important insights into your own approach to the classroom. I'm, I'm curious to, to hear from you, Kevin, how how did you reimagine, redesign your courses in response to the, the disruption caused by COVID-19? Well, it was a little easier for me in that I, I teach online regularly. Um, you know, I teach our history survey courses as fully online courses. I do a lot of research and, and work in online teaching and learning. It's something that interests me greatly. I think it has a lot of promise for access to higher ed. So when we did this sort of abrupt pivot, as, it was, as we've been calling it, uh, I was fortunate in that I felt pretty prepared to do it. And I, you know, and I also teach a reduced class load because of my duties as, uh, as administering our teaching center. Um, what was difficult was, you know, my teaching center, which is me and an instructional technologist who works with me, we're a center of two. We were responsible for helping the rest of the institution prepare for this shift to online teaching and learning, which, you know, that was a difficult part is working with colleagues, some of whom were experienced online teachers, many of whom were not, and all of a sudden were taking courses that were designed to be, you know, taught uh, in one particular way and shift them into a completely different modality. And I think what was interesting about that is there was a grieving process that was involved for all of us. You know, we were losing something. Uh, our students were losing sports seasons and commencement and all of the things that go by the wayside when we when we canceled in-person events on our campus. But faculty, you know, classes that were going well, the really cool project that students were working on, you know, those things changed if not went away. And I think we needed to create space to acknowledge that, that this was a sense of loss and disruption. Um, and so for me, the, the class that I was teaching when we moved online was actually kind of a college success class uh, on learning science and, and study skills and, and sort of applied uh, success uh, ideas. And I think the biggest thing for me was to adopt as much flexibility and compassion as I could. I don't think any of us students or faculty had as much bandwidth to draw upon as we would under normal circumstances. And when our campus closed, many of my students returned home or wherever they were living and you know, their work schedules may have changed. Uh, they may have had caregiving responsibilities. You know, everything was different. And so I had to let them know, look, 
there are probably other things more important than this particular class right now. And so let's talk about what I can do to help you with all of your academics and then where this class might fit into it. But I don't want you to worry about deadlines. I don't want you to worry about, uh, you know, stuff that, that was delineated on the syllabus that was designed for a way of class that we don't have anymore. And so let's talk about how we're going to open things up, make it flexible so that you can work with it. And I think, you know, empathy and flexibility were the key things for me. Sure. And, and, and I have to tell you, uh, uh, I, I love that, that the idea of grieving, I completely agree. And I never even thought of it in, in that way. And I just have to say, you know, radical hope arrived on my doorstep, um, right as we were beginning the process of making the transition. And so I think that in part kind of drove, um, the, the speed with which I read, uh, read your book, I tend to be a pretty slow reader. Um, but, but I just, I flew through a book because I realized I, I needed I needed those ideas. I needed the inspiration to help the faculty, staff, and students on my campus navigate this. And 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 a question actually that I got from a colleague. I let a couple of colleagues know uh, you're that uh, we were going to be talking today. And I said, "What questions do you have?" And 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 the question that that actually came up yesterday, and I think it's an important one, and it's sort of linked to a question I was going to ask you about the book in its current context, but how do we, and it's a huge one, and it, it we, could, we could probably talk for two more hours just about this. You could write another book about this. Uh, how do we sustain the radical hope of education in the face of this disruption, which seemingly creates a space for the disruptors we were talking about earlier? How do, how do, we, how do we hold back the, the the hordes at the gates, right? Trying to change, you know, you know, disrupt higher education to such a uh, an alarming degree. That's a great question, and one that I've been thinking about a lot, actually. And I think the important thing for us to consider is that space has been opened, you know, and that's that's the reality, right? But who's going to fill that space? Whose story gets to fill that space? For me, that's not as certain. Right. And so, yes, you have the disruptor saying, see, you can do college online. See, you can do, you know, we've been telling you for years, you can unbundle campus and move things online and it's flexible and it's great and it's wonderful. And this is how we should go in the future. And, you know, so for people who want to adjunctify the faculty and unbundle campus experiences, that's what they're using this, this space for is to advance that narrative. But what we can also say is, hey, it kind of sucked when we had to pivot things online. It was not the same. Uh, faculty were not prepared and not supported and didn't have the resources to do it in the ways that they know that they could have had all of those things been in place. And so for all the sort of gleeful prophets saying ed tech will solve everything, well, we just saw that it clearly did not. You know, we see that some of our students live in areas without good Internet access. The digital divide is real. Uh, and so we have an opportunity to say here's here are the lessons that we're learning from this you know look at the work that it takes to make a pivot online so that learning can still occur even if it looks different you know some classes probably sustained excellence and did great but a lot of us were sort of in that middle where it wasn't as good uh, and for a variety of reasons but we need to you know students and parents this isn't what they signed up for either and yeah. so how do we push back against this narrative and say, look, you know, this is not the ideal. And we know that 
you know, this sort of, you know, when the disruptors say we can move everything digital, that, you know, inequities in our society are, that's not going to work well for everybody. Uh, look at the labor that it takes to move these classes in this different format. Adjunct faculty were basically being asked to design another class in the middle of the semester, but they're only getting paid to teach one class and they're not getting paid nearly enough. You know, what, what, is, what are the labor conditions like in higher education? And those have been laid bare uh, by the COVID virus. And I think that we need to, to continue to keep that in the center of the conversation and say, this is not a sustainable way to do things. Uh, and, and we need to, that's the story that needs to be put in here. I, I'm not patient with the talk that we just want everything to get back to normal because normal wasn't sustainable either. Uh, we need to get back to the way things ought to have been, not the way things were. Yeah, it, the way the way I've been talking about the, the what's happened over the last six weeks, we we uh, we didn't transform higher ed, we triaged higher ed exactly. And mm -hmm. and as as you as you note there, there were already wounds, there were already injuries in higher ed that were getting worse that have only now been exacerbated by COVID nineteen. And so the question that becomes, you know, to continue that metaphor, then you know, what do we do? Do we just slap a few Band-Aids on and say, you know, go out and tough it up, uh, get back to normal? Or do we say this is a chance to, you know, solve the root problems, as you will? You know, we need surgery. Uh, we need, you know, comprehensive care. We don't need uh, simple cosmetic fixes. Yeah, and, it, and, and, I, and I think, like, just sort of, again, continuing that, I mean, it's, it is there. There are there are no quick fixes, and the disruptors like to suggest there are there are quick fixes for higher ed. Uh, the reality is, and I think you you do such a fantastic job of laying this out, in radical hope, and you've, you you've hit upon the key themes today. That these are structural issues in higher ed. These are structural issues in our in our society. But higher ed has the potential, if pointed in the right direction, to not just heal itself, but to heal society as well. Absolutely. We are uniquely positioned, I think, in higher education to have that kind of effect, uh, that outsize effect. Uh, and if we are able to gain the resources and the direction to be able to do so, it, you know, to use the rhetoric of the disruptors, the return on investment uh, would be huge. Uh, and that's what we need to be looking for. That's what, you know, if, if you want to talk about big, deep-seated structural changes, we can enact those in higher education, but they will ripple outwards because higher education is literally shaping the next generation of decision makers. Yeah, that that feels like we, we're, we're closing uh, this portion of the interview on a, on a note of radical hope. Uh, there so, we go. <laughs> so, uh, Kevin, thanks so much for the interview. Don't go anywhere. I got three more questions. All of our guests have to answer. But, but again, thank you so much for sharing your insights, your perspective on life in the classroom, and 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 where higher ed can go, where higher ed should go. Well, thanks for having me on and for for letting me talk about this with you. So every guest who appears on Phoenix Thriving needs to answer three questions before we'll let them go. Kevin, you're up. First All question, right. time machine question. If, and I will just preface this by saying our producer, Brian Carr, was our first guest. He fundamentally challenged the premise of the question, but I stick with it. 
Uh, if time machines existed and you could violate the first rule of time tra travel, which I insist is don't interact with yourself, go back in time and give advice to yourself on the first day of classes at James Madison University, what would you say? I would say let people help you. Uh, I think for a while I knew that I was in trouble, at least in certain places academically. Um, and I felt like I could work my way out of it myself. Uh, and that wasn't the case. And it was only after I accepted help and realized that, that I, that, you know, we do this together rather than alone that I was able to be successful. You know, that took three years and a near dropout. Uh, so perhaps <laughs> I would tell myself it, it doesn't have to be that hard, right? Let people help you. Uh, accept that help uh, because that's really the only way we all succeed. The, I, I'm just going to tell you that line might end up on the Phoenix Thriving Twitter and Facebook Twitter account and Facebook page <laughs> because that is something I preach day in and day out. Let people right. help you and 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 I think that's such it's such an easy thing to say. It's such a hard mm -hmm. thing to do though. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And and for me it was excruciatingly difficult and you know, and I look back and of course it's frustrating to say, "Oh, come on, you know, it it didn't have to be as hard as it was." Yeah. All right. Now now I think we're going to maybe get to some of those people that helped you, but college is about connections. What was the most meaningful connection that you made with a peer, or with a staff member or an instructor? Maybe it was a JMU, maybe it was in grad school. I think it was probably at JMU, and it would have been, uh, you know, the two faculty members who served as my advisors. Uh, Skip Heiser in the history department was my freshman advisor, uh, and then Jack Butt was my history major advisor. And a the Jack two of Butt them, reference. I love yes. Jack. Oh, Jack! You know, I had a class. I had a class with him my first semester. Uh, and when it came time to be assigned advisors, when I opened the letter my sophomore year and saw that he'd been assigned as my advisor, I was over the moon. I, I love that man. Um, he, Skip and Jack both just, you know, they were the ones who, who, you know, helped me like I talked about earlier that, you know, just were so generous with their knowledge, their expertise and, and patient with a student who didn't always earn that patience. Uh, so the, the connections with the two of them and then with other faculty members in the history department at JMU were, were absolutely the most important in my experience. Yeah, I'll, I'll just tell you a, a quick uh, quick story about Jack Butt. So uh, he was my freshman advisor and then I, I moved on to another member of the history department, but I always stayed very close to him. And it, it, it there were a series of experiences that I had with him and they made clear to me that history was something I could do. History was something that I should pursue. He he conveyed to me in a couple of different contexts, your peers should hear your voice. I was the mm -hmm. kid that just kind of sat in the back of the class, didn't really say anything. And 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 he and I had a couple of conversations and he read a paper and and the confidence that he instilled in me I think I think still exists, right? Was that like initial seed uh, that that I needed, and I you know, and I, I look back and I'm so grateful for those conversations. So that's, um, yeah, that's all, and that that's a, that's a jackpot thing, right? Like yeah. he knew when when to push us in ways that you know we needed, right, to help build our confidence. Absolutely. Yeah. So one final question for you. Uh, we're going to pick one and recommend. You can pick either something people should listen to, they should read, they should watch, or they should do. So I would recommend uh, 
mostly but not all to faculty and staff members, but I think students as well. Uh, Sarah Goldrick Rab's book, Paying the Price, uh, which is a study of uh, college debt, uh, the tuition increases, the financial precarity that more and more college students find themselves in, both during and after their collegiate experience. Um, Sarah is if, just a fierce advocate for student well-being and basic needs. Um, the, the Hope Lab at Temple University that she runs is probably one of the most uh, vigorous advocates for student welfare that we have in this country. And that book, it, it's, it's an alarming and sobering read, but it's a, an absolutely necessary and essential read because it tells us as faculty and staff, for example, you know, what if we want to talk about the student experience, it's not just what's happening in the classroom or on campus, but it's these larger structures of inequity that our students are coming from. And what does that look like in their daily lives? And how might we uh, on campus begin to address some of the some of the needs that that you know, that situation has created for our students. So it's it's sobering, but I think it's also a call to action. And what I really like about the book is that, it, you know, it's, it's obviously a withering critique of the status quo, but the last chapter talks about effective, practical, uh, and achievable solutions uh, to some of the sharpest edges of this crisis. And I think that we uh, in higher ed need to be paying a lot of heed uh, to what Sarah has to say. Yeah, there, there it is again, that, that hope, you know, that hope that we need to hang on to, we need to spread in the face of cynicism. To me, cynicism is lazy, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's that thing, oh, it's, it's really easy to complain, to moan, to pine after the good old days, but the reality is that that's only going to seed ground. And, and I, Kevin, I, I thank you so much for being on the show today. I thank you so much for the perspective that you offer in higher education. Um, the the insights that, that that you give and the way that that you point us forward, right? As part of that that community in teaching and learning, um, that that I think really will help us fix higher ed, right? To not triage higher ed, but to heal higher ed. Well, thank you for having me on, and and you know your thanks for the very kind words, and I'm glad that the book is resonating, and yeah, the the work is in front of us to do, uh, and it's great to hear that there are people who are dedicated to doing it and doing it well. We've come to the end of today's show, and the quote from, comes from Paulo Freire. An educator and philosopher cited frequently throughout Kevin's book, Frere says, The teacher is, of course, an artist, but being an artist does not mean that he or she can make the profile, can shape the student. What the educator does in teaching is to make it possible for the students to become themselves. I hope that listeners out there will embrace this as a challenge, as a call to action. And the same with Kevin's book. Regardless of your role in the educational landscape, you have radical potential to transform higher ed, to achieve its potential, not only for itself, but for our society. Thanks for checking us out today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you've got any questions out there, email me and strike up a conversation. You can also check us out on social media, Twitter and Facebook. Our handle, UWGB Thriving. Give us a follow, send us your thoughts on the show, and please be sure to post a review on wherever you find our podcast. And be sure to watch for future episodes. We've got some exciting guests lined up. 
course, today's episode certainly ratcheted things up a bit in terms of where this show could uh, could go. I really appreciate the time that Kevin gave. Each week, you can count upon this show to bring you unique perspectives, firsthand experiences, and advice that you can put to use on your educational journey wherever it may lead. 